any idiot can face a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears us out. I was thinking back to where we started today's show with those students who were scared to go and do that thing. Hey, we can all face a crisis. It's the day-to-day living, the day-to-day mono- uh, monotony, the Groundhog Day syndrome, the boredom. There's so much abundance, so many black holes to lose ourselves in, in terms of digital handsets and phones. That day-to-day living, we're constantly trying to escape it. We're constantly trying to not allow us our negative thoughts in and, d- and to detach ourselves from them and distract ourselves from them. But actually, negative emotions are a good thing. As long as we're, they're in check, if we lean into them, they promote action. Welcome to the Mindful Paths podcast with Nick Day and Harry Kalimnios, where we explore the fascinating worlds of mindset, mindfulness, fitness, well-being, vitality, leadership, and personal development. Our goal is to provide you with the insights to help you live a more fulfilling, happier, and healthier life. If you're striving to be a better parent, friend, leader, colleague, or boss, or if you simply want to be more mindful and aware of the world around you, then this Mindful Past podcast is for you. We invite you all to eavesdrop on our conversations and we challenge you to discover a new insight to help you on your own journey towards personal growth and positive change. So sit back, relax, and let's begin our journey together on the Mindful Paths podcast. Hey, Harry, how you doing, buddy? Good to see you. Nice to see you too. I'm in a, a slightly different venue today. Um, I'm at my sister's place, so hopefully the uh, the uploading will be better here. That's the idea anyway. Um, but I'm doing better than I was a few hours ago, but uh, maybe we'll go into a little bit about that um, today in the topic. But um, I was, um, I've had a nice call with my mentoring group that I do every fortnight that you might be aware of. Um, so there's four or five. Um, teenagers that I mentor and it's been a gorgeous day here in Brighton I'm down in Brighton and it was blue sky and I hadn't been out most of the day so I got out around 4 30 and sunsets around five past five so I went for a nice sort of sunset walk because actually it was so clear ironically enough um, you don't see this kind of colors like you do when it's a bit of clouds because it was it was so clear so the sun just literally went down but it was so nice and people were out on the beach and I was just doing a bit of Wim Hof breathing, a bit of contemplation, listening to some classical music. And I was thinking, because I had a headache as well, and something was on my mind, um, which we'll talk about maybe in a minute. But I was just thinking, this is why I'm making the move to be able to have moments like this. When when the day's not going great, you can just step outside, yeah. have a little bit of self-care, enjoy the sea, you know, even if it's for half an hour, 20 minutes, and then step back into the mix. So that's how I am doing. How are you, my friend? Yeah, you know what? I'm good. I'm in a good, good space. I've uh, I learned a new term this week, which I've been quite excited about. Equanimity. Oh, our camera just dropped off. Oh, yeah. uh, equ- equanimity. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Mm. Um, yeah, sort of part of rebalancing and letting go of attachments. And I've enjoyed some reading into, uh, well, going deeper into the world of Buddhist teachings and being Zen and all that. So I've quite enjoyed that. I had some friends up to stay, and um, one of my friends is as as much into her kind of. She, she's a self-professed self uh, self-development junkie. So we talked about that as well, um, which oh, was interesting because there's a bit of the yeah the if and the if and then principle comes in. You know, if I read this book, then I'll be happy. If I've done this, then I'll be that. So it's how far do you go into the uh, the self-development? You know abyss or, or black holes uh, because you can just you can keep reading and keep improving, right? And it's when yeah. when do we say, sit back and start to Seven years, seven years, like for you. For seven years for you. Yeah, it was a, 
it was about yeah. seven years, no, maybe six years, six, six, seven years of like deep dive. Um, when I when I was got into this world of personal development, I, I was thinking about this the other day because I was listening to a podcast or some music, and there was a time where I didn't listen to anything like that. I just listened to training programs. So these were old school training programs before, you know, when the when the likes of Bob Proctor, Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar would go on the circuit in the 80s and record all their things and sell them on video on cassette tapes. So I have audio programs of basically everything they've ever done. And for about five years, all I would listen to, if you saw me with headphones on, whether I was at work, whether I was walking, whatever it was, I was listening to those training programs. And I listened to most of those training programs at least 10 times each program, some of those 20 times, so for about five years solid. And then around 2015, 2016, I got into podcasts and I haven't really gone back and listened to those things much since then. But those first five, six, seven years where I was going to all the events, reading all the books, having all the conversations, doing all that. And then you get to a point where, or at least I got to a point where it's like, how much more does one need to get, right? It just accept it and I, I think i was reading something by jack canfield do you know jack canfield he wrote the chicken soup for the soul series of books yes i do yes yeah, yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. and he was talking about again something i learned a while back which is this method of speed reading uh, we called it flash reading others call it photo reading they're basically the same thing um but what they are is it's more than speed reading it's, it's it's being able to consume books at a rate that you wouldn't perceive possible. I remember I got into it a little bit and I, my first book I read as part of my research for my first book, The Thought Gym, I think I read about five or six books in a week doing that flash reading, photo reading method. And I remember listening to something he was saying, he was, cause he was an expert in this as well. And he got to the point where he was like, actually the goal for me is not to consume and consume and consume as much information as possible and flash read. Now I've gone back to normal reading. And I'm a bit like that now as well. I'm like, what I need to know, I'll know at the time I need to know it and trust that the universe will give me the, the information, the resources, the people, the conversations I need when I need them, rather than trying to inhale it all. So I think it was about six, seven years for me. And then I got to that point where I'm now like, let me just, you know, I, I know what I know yeah, nice. and I'll learn things as I need to learn them. Yeah. I, don't, so, I, I think I'm probably at a similar, similar point at the moment. I, mean, I, I first read um, Own the Day, Own Your Life probably five years ago. That was my first book. That and mm. the Dale Carnegie uh, book sort of set me off for five years ago. I think I'm, I'm, I'm there on the self-development junkie side. I'm not really reading any of those books anymore. Although saying that, uh, there are still a couple on my reading list I want to get through. I've just ordered A New Earth by um, Urquhart Tolley, which um, uh, The Power of Now I've already read a few years ago. Yeah, and I want to read um, uh, The Alchemist as well, but that's that, that's because I'm going on holiday, and I wanted to fancy a bit of, uh, uh, you know, not really self-improvement, more story mixed with the world I'm finding interesting. So I've, I've got I've got those to read when, when I go away in April. Um, at, um, yeah, we, we had a good chat about books we'd read, and, and it was it's good just to, I don't know, have a conversation with a friend I haven't seen for a while, but what they've read. I shared your reading, your ep epic reading list with them as oh well, so God. they could see what was on there. And, I'm sure she's read. Yeah, we just have a good Yeah. Guess what I read last night? But it was good. Actually, I and I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a clue. I, I read it with my niece. Oh, it'll be the um, the horse <laughs> and the, yeah, I can't remember the full title now, yeah. but yeah, the one I recommended to you. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The, the, 
uh, the boy, the fox, the mole, and the horse, and the everything else. And we, we read yeah, it last yeah. night because she hadn't really properly read it. I bought it to her for Christmas. I think she liked it. I was I was having to stop and give her some of the lessons there. She was she was, uh, but I think she liked it. She liked the pictures. She's got. I'm glad you actually got the because I'm not sure if the book I version I got has less text than the other one because it wasn't explaining what was going on because it was all pictures based on the cartoon or the the an animated version they did. So I'm not sure if ours yeah, had less yeah. words because it was very few words. Uh, but she goes, I prefer There's that very few words in the main pictures. one, mate, to be honest. There's very few words okay, in the main one, enough. to be honest, honestly. Yeah, yeah. So I know that you were keen to yeah. talk about failure today. I don't know if that's because you've been through something since we last met or whether um, that was just a principle you wanted to adjust the readers. Tell us more. I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. So I, I think failure doesn't get enough conversation a lot of the time. And I remember, I, and I've had a conversation with my mentoring group about it today, which always prompts things. But there's been a few what I would call failures in the last week, which I think have stressed me out, right? We, I get stressed like anybody else. The first one was actually trying to fix a shower shower system in um, in my old flat, the one that you went to where the tenants yeah. were mentioning that water never got hot enough or never got cold enough. And it's, it's always been like that. It's, it, it never kind of worked properly. And then I was doing lots of reading, thought it was to do with the anti-scold device. And I thought it'd be a simple case of like just adjusting that to the full max to get it hot and everything. Basically, I, I think I made a bit of a pig's ear of it. I mean, it still works and it's still fine. But the other one, the second shower, which they don't use, doesn't work so much. I've ordered some parts for it <clears throat> and I'll probably get someone in to do it. But I was getting quite stressed and quite anxious. And also it was bringing back a lot of things that for my dad, because my dad was an expert with all of these things. Right. And even though in his later years, he wouldn't have been able to be as hands on. He would be he would be there with me, coaching me when I was doing things. So that was stressing me out quite a lot. And I was, and I was getting a bit worked up. I'm glad I managed to fix it because I think I made it worse and I made it better again, but then I'm not sure for how long it's, it's going to be better. So that, that was stressing me out a little bit. And today I think there's a couple of little failures that, that have occurred, which have been playing on me. And first one was a bit more minor uh, to do with family. I think I was sharing something. I won't go to too much detail in case the person was listening, but um, a family sure. member of mine, sure mentioned about another family member um, being advised to to take something from the doctor to help them with with certain situations and and I'm not the biggest fan of those things particularly because of the research I've done and, and actually I am a fan of them when in the small time that they're appropriate but the majority 99% of the time that they're utilized they're not really very useful um, so anyway, so I was given some information about that and they then went back to the original person and said, oh, what are you doing telling Harry about this, blah, blah, blah. And I, and then the other person was having to go at me for sharing that stuff, even though I'd said I was going to share that stuff, but maybe because I said that, yeah, anyway, so that was a big, a bit of a failure on my part in terms of, okay, now I know I should double check things before I send them. But the other one, which has really played on me, which I thought, um, was so I do some work for a company, a, um, a charity, and we're freelancers with those people, and I do a lot of uh, work for them. And then I, I do that in schools, and I got a bit of weird feedback from a, a teacher who never actually was part of the workshop. They came in at the last hour uh, to basically do supervision. So every hour there was a different teacher. So we never built up any rapport, and we were doing the final 
the final showcases of, of speeches. And she came in, I think, when they were about 10, 15 minutes into those speeches. So I didn't introduce myself. I was busy doing the, the MC and everything. There's, there's a lot going on at that, that period of the time. And you, there's a lot to do in that final hour. Anyway, at some point, I think she'd left the room. There was lots of interruptions in that final speeches. She left the room and then she came back in and she left the door open. And I'm like, okay, she left the door open. So I went to close it because it's really distracting when you've got the noise from the outside. Anyway, she's like, no, leave that open. And so I was like, okay, why? You know, uh, and she's like, oh, it's stuffy in here. So I was like, okay, so I left it open for a bit. Then after a few more speeches, we were coming towards the end of the speeches and the really nervous people that I'd left to the end because I wanted to, I don't want to, sometimes the nervous people I don't use at the beginning because if they say they don't want to do it, I normally won't, I would never force anyone to do it. So I would say, okay, that's fine. You don't have to do it or we'll come back to you. But if you do that too early, then other people that would really do it, see it as an opt out. So I was coming to the end of the speeches, these two people that I'd had my eye on uh, all day, really, because they were like really nervous. I was like, I don't know if they're going to do it or not. And I thought, there's all this distraction coming from the corridors. There were people pushing trolleys, teachers shouting to the other teachers in the corridor. And the audience were kept looking at getting diverted over, over there. The speakers were getting diverted. And I thought, I need quiet for these people because I really want to make sure that they have the most supportive environment and not distracted from people walking outside or other students who are out of lessons, like ducking their head in, all of that weird stuff that happens in schools. So I closed the door. And they do their speeches. And then at another point, she goes out, leaves the door open. Now, all the time I'm thinking, I think she's just forgetting to close the door. So I went to close it. She's yeah. like, no, no, you've got to leave it open for health and safety now. Not, not stuffiness, health and safety. So I was like, so I left it open. <clears throat> anyway, she's taken issue with all that. She's men I actually mentioned it to the lead teacher afterwards. I said, you know, just so you know, the teacher wanted the door open at one point. I closed it because I was trying to create this space for of non-distraction for these students um and she said it was to do with stuffiness or whatever anyway so that that then gets all back to the office and then the office come back to me and they're like you know and then the thing is with this office is they don't they don't tend to really want to understand the trainer's perspective a lot of the time um although they claim to um so it's um yeah it's, it's plain on my mind I, one i see it as a failure because Oh, there's a couple of failures, right? One, okay, I, I think I wish I'd acted slightly differently and maybe, uh, I don't know, not not insisted on the. I move my desk because I'm talking to you. Yeah, but um, but also, okay. in terms of you only ever hear from the head office when they generally got like 99 percent of the time that you hear from them, it's because they've got something to say uh, about you that that they that they want to share. So. Yeah, it's it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit uh, of a funny one because then you're like, well, and that's actually a reasonable chunk of my income, and I and I and they have let people go who have been working there for years and years um, because of X, Y, Z reason. And as a freelancer, you can just not get offered to work, and and they, you know, they're not technically firing you or anything like that. Whether they would for something like this or not, I don't know. But part of me is also like, you know what, I'll work around it. I'll I'll, I'll find a solution. But also at the same time, it was just bringing up this conversation of this idea of why we expect people to always, I don't know, be successful or perfect or not make mistakes. And then when those mistakes are, like if their mistakes are brought up, 
most people don't have a great way of engaging with the person that they want to help make better. Um, so I think that was for me a, a failure and it just brought up a, a few other failures we were talking about earlier in my life that everyone has and how we're often afraid of failing or we have this fear of failing and, and how I don't know I don't think you're in that same position I think as an entrepreneur you're and as a sports person you are, have a different perspective to me so that's why it'd be interesting to talk about it but I think this stems from when I was really quite young um, this idea of fear of failing right because I, you know, I failed to get into the first school that I, I wanted to get into in secondary school and I remember that playing on me because I was like oh I'm not good enough for this or you know why why didn't they why didn't they want me or and I think that I didn't get in because the headmaster had written a, a dodgy report about me or something um although he was a little bit racist ultimately none of none of that really none of none of that really matters does it I mean it's it, the key I think to failure mm. in terms of understanding it and overcoming it is not being fearful of it because as you said before in a previous episode, you know, it's the first attempt in learning is to fail. But mm. um, I think when yeah. it comes to failure, I think that the number one thing is is not being attached to it. If we don't, if we don't have the attachment to the thing that we need or we, we, we perceive ourselves to need, then we don't have the emotional um, uh, response to it that you might be having now. So for you at the moment, there's a fear that you may or may not be brought, asked back um, because of, of, of what's happened. It's ultimately outside of your control. Um, but you know, there's there's lots of quotes out there that will say that the failure failure is the key to success actually because each time it teaches us something new. Yeah. Um, but it's it's the courage to continue going on anyway that really counts. And I would I would say the same with um, I, I had a conversation today. So this is this is relevant. It's not about failure, but it's relevant to the example. I had a, a conversation with a very senior individual, um, a six figure uh, candidate who was looking for a new position, and she was asking for some um, CV advice. And I said to her, um, you know, on your CV, if you're passionate about these certain things, and I think in this particular example, she's particularly passionate about uh, gender equality, diversity, inclusion, creating uh, organizations that have a good sense of belonging, things like that. Uh, but she wasn't necessarily in a role that that made it part of her role. Okay, so she was like, I'm really passionate about these things, but it's not direct responsibility of what I've got to do in my, in my position. So do I put that on my CV or do I not? And I said, well, look, if you... If you put it on there and someone reads that and thinks that it's it's not right, that's not the kind of individual they want in their business, um, and actually you get in there and you realize that the culture is completely in conflict with the kind of company you want to work for, then that would be a real shame. And if you if putting that on your CV stops you from getting that opportunity, well, I would actually say that's a good thing because you you're learning in advance that actually if, if the hiring manager says, I don't want someone that's you know going to come in with all their ideas about belonging and changing things or whatever, you already know there's going to be a cultural value clash there that you're just not going to, it's not going to be the right business for you. So by laying out on your mm. CV exactly what you stand for, exactly what you are passionate about believing in, it can be about anything, right? I think actually yeah. if the hiring manager at the other end or the person reviewing it says, you know what, I mean, we need someone like that in our business and actually those values are completely aligned with ours, not only are you more likely to get the job potentially because you can see a value alignment, but you're more likely to be to stay in that position as well, knowing that they've already read that on your CV, knowing they've chosen to see you anyway and interview you, and knowing that's not something you have to try and force later on. You've been upfront about that on your on what arguably is the most important important document we ever write in our lives, right? About ourselves. So why would we hide something mm. from our CV that's really really important to us? So. I think there would there'd be a, a to to 
I guess to reverse engineer the question in that example, her fear was if I put that on there, I may fail to get an interview, right? Well, if you don't put it on there and you, you get an interview, you'll fail anyway if those cultural values don't align later on. Yeah. So you're better being upfront about who yeah. you are about what you stand for, about what you believe in, about putting your best foot forward, whatever that might mean. If something happens that's outside of our control, which happens all the time, by the way, that's life. The only thing constant in life is change. The only thing constant in life is unpredictability, right? We can't predict the future. I think we just own it. Uh, As you have done, these things happened. Uh, They were outside of my sphere of control. Uh, It impacted the session. It's a shame because the feedback I've had from all of my clients today is X, Y, and Z. And here it is. Here are the examples of all the positive reports that I've had and why I get asked back time and time again. Um, I really enjoy working with your students. I have a real passion for delivering the work. Um, And if they decide not to take you back after you've given that kind of response, it's probably not the right school for you, Harry. I know there's a commercial element to it. You need the money, but but it's secondary to to the value thing to me. It's less the schools are kind of different, chop and change. But I guess in your example with your, you know, your candidate, what springs to mind as well is that ultimately you don't really know what that person wants. So there's no point trying to bend and shape yourself to fit to that person. No. And again, getting back to that Canfield, I remember he had this phrase which he called SW4. I changed it a little bit to SW6, uh, which basically. The SW stands for some will, some won't, so what, someone's waiting. And then I added stick with it, still win. And basically that's to remind me that you're not going to be everything to all people. If if you try and be everything to all people, you're going to be pretty much nothing to everybody. And so you've got to just, I guess, be true to yourself and be who you are. And then, like I say, some will want you, some won't want you, right? So what? someone else is there waiting for the things you got stick with it and you'll still win and that's why i call sw6 because I, I i again i have these phrases and i remind myself of these phrases i remind myself of these examples and yet when you when you encounter it you still you know you still ponder it and this this is the right thing to do anyway because it's about pondering it it's not about okay i failed just move on i failed just move on no fail reflect see if it's a failure, if you perceive it as being a failure, and then what is that learning from that frequent attempt in learning or first attempt in learning that you're going to get? One of the examples, you, do you know, are you familiar with the, the brand Spanx? I can't remember if you are or not. Yeah, actually, only, um, only because you've highlighted it to me in the past. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think this is what I think we mentioned it before, where where Sarah Blakely, who's the founder of Spanx, when she was at the dinner table with her parent, with her dad and brother when she was growing up, he would ask her, "What have you failed at today?" And he'd be upset if he hadn't, if she had nothing, if she and her brother had nothing to mention that they'd failed at. And I think that we, because that he knew very wisely that there are going to be lots of failures in life, and you have to fail to succeed, and that failure is not in the way of your success, right? Failure. This someone said this to me once years ago, and it resonated. failure is on the way it's not in the way and just realizing that failure is is the stepping stone you need in order to get to the next place but it's still i I guess it's it's still challenging because like especially when the failure is i would challenge that a little bit i I would i would challenge it even as a as a concept i mean i would say uh, sorry for those listeners i think there's a slight lag uh, on our connections at the minute still but um hopefully we're not over talking over each other too much um but i would i would challenge that a little bit i think um 
there's a there's a theory that says rejection doesn't actually exist. It, ex- it only exists in the mind. I think the same is for failure. I think often we 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 label ourselves with titles or identify ourselves with words like failure or fail without first defining what success looks like in the first place. We're very quick as, as humans to jump to the negative in a situation. We could often have 10 successes, but if we've got one failure or we deem to be a failure within the 10 successes, that's the thing that we focus on, which is a real mm. shame. Maybe it links to our innate you know, willingness to, or, or, or a want to survive. I don't know. But I think um, even in that scenario, I would still argue that failure really only only exists in our minds because you can't fail anything unless you're attached to an outcome. And it's mm. only we only feel failure when when we you know if, if it's not if we haven't attached ourselves to it if we're able to let go and lose the attachment then we don't feel failure in the first place we can see it as a learning process we can see it as just part of what we go through in day to day life it's it's I think it's sometimes a shame I think we label too much as failure we like to be black and white we like to say this is a success. And this is a failure. And actually, often neither is true because we haven't really defined what it is or we've, we're we looking too narrow at the solution. If we look at even an athletic term, so, you know, I've done a lot of Ironman events and you could say that my target was to go under 10 hours uh, in Estonia. And I would argue that was a success, right? Because I achieved my goal of going under 10 hours. Now, had that I'd not achieved it, it would be very easy for me to jump to the conclusion that therefore it was a failure. And in some instances, it would be in the sense that I didn't do the 10-hour clock time. But there are so many successes brought, you know, rolled into that failure in inverted commas. The, the, the ability to, or the, you know, the, the training that went into it, the, 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 the ability to overcome the challenge way earlier in the race before I knew I was going to go under 10 hours when I wanted to quit to keep going, the enhanced fitness, the, the fact I got to take my family to Estonia, that's a success, somewhere I never would have gone before and have that wonderful time with my kids. The success of, therefore, being at that race meant I had the opportunity to enter my son into the Ironman Juniors race and watch him finish, and all the things that come with it. It'd be too easy to write it off as a failure if I hadn't done the time. Um, equally, had I made, the, you know, I, I, it was a success in the sense I went under 10 hours, but had something catastrophic happened there that maybe we, you know, something happened along there, someone got un- was unwell, maybe... Um, post-race, I broke my leg, or whatever it is, you know, does that make the event a success or a failure because I got the time? I, I just think sometimes we're very quick to label ourselves with one action or the other when actually often it only exists in our minds anyway. Um, a success to my dad is just getting to the start line, you know, so he wouldn't see it as a failure if I made the time or not. And that's, that is a great example of how it really does exist in the mind. Um, I think the best thing is to say that we've tried. And I think no, that's a bit long like you mentioned right. there, being on the pathway. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, and again, it stems back to, you know, what we talk about all the time, right? Nothing has any meaning except for the meaning that you give it. And so you defining something as a failure is, is, is or a person defining something as a failure is their own personal label for an, an event. Um, obviously, we create labels because they create meaning and understanding and help us relate to other people and to ourselves. And, you know, whilst we can obviously, you know, reframe things. So for example, I could reframe this and I have done already, which is why I'm feeling much better than I did say two hours ago, three hours ago, is that firstly, what will be, will be, 
right? What will, ha what will happen will have to happen in the way it happens, right? Whatever, if there's no fallout, if there is fallout, whatever. But also what we were talking about last time where we were talking about uncertainty and the idea of being certain in the uncertainty, certain in your response yeah. to adapt, change and bounce back, then for me, that becomes then the, the thing that, okay, if there are repercussions from a certain action that I take, I'm certain that I'll find a way. And that actually for a lot of time, you know, the, it could be the universe guiding you towards things. I was talking to one of my students today, one of my mentees, and she is quite religious as well. And she was like, well, you know, I think of it, if I don't get the thing that I'm after or something happens, then, you know, God didn't will it for me to be this way or in this way or shape or form. And so I'm okay with it. And I think that plays a big part into it. And I think we should do a, a session one day on religion, faith, spirituality, and things like that. But I think that where you hold religion or spirituality in your way of being, it does help for a lot of things because you might say, well, okay, this is the way it's to be. Now that's not the same as saying lie down and take everything that comes to you in life, right? It's like you still take the actions that you need because you focus on what's within your control, the inputs, and then the output is up to the universe, God, faith, whatever to determine. Um, I think the, it's the, a bit like the if, you're, if you're climbing, if, if you're climbing Everest, right? There's a lot of people that have done this, and um, uh, you know, they'll say the success is not getting to the top; the success is getting back down. Because most people yeah. die on the descent rather than the ascent, right? But if you were to view it, and most people only ever talk about the, I got to the top of Everest, but actually the bigger success is getting, it arguably is getting off the mountain. So I think there's, um, I, I, I highlight that. Well, because one, something you mentioned there popped into my head in relation to reframing, right? So just because we feel like we failed doesn't mean we have failed that doesn't make it a truth just because we feel it inside doesn't make it a truth and i think that's a good chance for where we can kind of it's a jump off point for us we can reframe at that point we can go you know what just because i feel this way in the moment that's what my thinking is if i change the way i think about that situation actually this could be a success so let me go back to, to the everest example for all those people that have tried to get to the top and haven't made it and they've had to turn around because a blizzard comes in that's just beyond their control outside of their power I would argue if they managed to get off the mountain and didn't freeze in the death zone, that's still a successful climb day, whatever way you want to term it, because they didn't end up dying in a death zone when avalanche came in, even though they never made it to the top. So I think there's an ability as well to constantly reframe even what our goals are in that moment. I was thinking also when you were talking about there's lots of people like me who, you know, I give an example, who learned to cook in different areas. So I, I would consider myself a pretty competent cook, but I'm a terrible baker. Like, I can't bake for, for love or money. I'm Ooh. terrible, terrible. And if you've seen any of my previous uh, efforts, you would understand why. Now, it could be, Harry, you come to my house now and I'm, I'm going to bake you a cake, right? And it would come out probably better than I've ever done before. And I would be really proud of it. And for me, I've versioned that as an success. You'd instantly look at it and go, what the hell is that? It looks like a that's a total fail because if you compare that to anyone who actually is able to competently bake, right, you'd look at it and go, that is an absolute travesty. But for me, because of my reference point, because of my learning curve until that point has been so much more disastrous, I'm viewing it with a totally different viewpoint. Total success. Mm. I'm proud of that. And the only way I can, you can change my success into a failure is if I want to, as you said before, nothing means more, uh, has any means to the minute you give it, or also no one can make you feel anything. So if you then yeah. look at it differently and view that as a fail, that's on me. If I shouldn't 
what you think of it is irrelevant. It's how I'm viewing yeah, my journey in that moment and my pathway. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's what you take on my comments. And I think this is where it's interesting is that the differentiation between failing where, let's say, it's you as an independent person, right? Like failing at a, tri a triathlon time or something versus failing because someone has a perceived opinion of you, right? right. That's on them, right? Not on you. But then it then becomes on you when you choose to accept their interpretation of how they think about you, if that makes sense. So if you accept, it's a bit like, you know, if someone get like you've given the example before with um, with your son, maybe where you were saying, you know, if someone gives you a gift and you don't accept it, to who does that gift belong? Right? Yeah. Well, it belongs to the person who was trying to give it. And it's the same thing. If someone gives you that bit of feedback that then you choose to accept and therefore interpret as a failure. I mean, all of this is, is, is great stuff. I, I know it and I say it because it helps me then remember it and implement it. It's not always easy to do in the moment, but it does happen at some point. For example, you know, in that moment, I might be feeling that a certain way, but then it might be half an hour, it might be an hour later, it might be when I've reflected on these things that then I can kind of navigate through. Um, so, but it's... I think the easiest thing to do, and I, well, I've done it in the past. I don't think I do it. I'd like to think I don't do it much anymore because I, as you say, you know, a lot of this is about raising awareness and being aware, catching ourselves in the moment and being aware of our thought patterns yeah. and being aware of how we're coming across. But certainly when I was growing up and I think back to university days, if something didn't work out the way I wanted it to, I'd be the first to blame it on somebody else. You know, I did everything. It wasn't me. It was this. It wasn't me. It was that, that lecturer who, who, you know, said they would do X or it wasn't this, it was that. And I think, again, that's, that's, we're looking for external solutions when often the answer yeah. is, is within us all. Um, and I, you know, I, mean, I believe well-being is innate. We're born with well-being. We're born as, as happy babies. And it's all the social stuff that gets thrust upon us that changes, you know, our, our mental well-being as we go through. And I th just think that it, sometimes we've got to look inward. This is exactly rather than blame the outward. point I was making to someone the other day is that there's someone in my sphere <clears throat> of, um, of social sphere that is always blaming their situation on something or someone else, right? It's okay. That's, that's a terrible boss or I'm stressed because I'm pregnant or I'm stressed because of this, whatever, always blaming someone and something outside of them. Whereas really I suspect the issue well, I kind of know the issue is ultimately within them. And and why that person should get excited with that realisation, which they haven't got, but why they should get excited, and I say this, and I'm sure we've said this before, but when you become responsible for something, you become responsible, right? If you have someone else have that responsibility, you've got no power to change. And, and that's a poor place to be. That's a victim place to be. Now, that's not the same as, let's say blame or anything like that, because for example, a new CEO coming into a failing company can take full responsibility for where that company is, but they obviously weren't there when all the rubbish stuff happens. So they can't really be to blame for it. Yeah. But as soon as you become responsible, you become responsible. And I think we don't often take enough responsibility for our own lives. I do that in certain areas where I do take responsibility, but then there are other areas where I feel like I, I I'm still working on it. Um, and I think, you know, it's always a work in progress. And one thing that helps me in, in this situation today, right, for example, is talking about it, right? I'm talking about it with you. I've spoken about it with 
other people that I've interacted with uh, in the last few hours. And that's actually really helped. And, and the other thing I wanted was you were talking about when it was coming to failure that I wanted to talk about. And what jumped into my head as an example was Abraham Lincoln. But I remember years ago I, when I was in that first five, six years of this personal development journey, if you like, I was reading lots of autobiographies. So you've, you've looked at my list. You've seen some of the autobiographies yeah. I've read. And as you start reading all these autobiographies, they tend to detail a lot more about their lives, right, in terms of the failures, the failure and the failure and the failure and the failure, whereas you don't normally get that when you get the highlights. And that really, really inspired me when I started reading about other people's failures because I think Abraham Lincoln was really, well, he was a bit of a, a, a kind of a depressed, melancholy soul from what I can understand, but he considered himself a failure in a lot, lot of regards, as did Churchill. And I think one of the quotes that Churchill said or is attributed to Churchill, which I really like, and you've probably heard, is success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And I really yeah. like that quote. And I feel like that should be that ethos generally should be more taught in schools, in, in society, the growth mindset, fixed mindset stuff we've talked about before. It, it's all wrapped up into the same idea. Actually, this is something I wanted to share with you. I just discovered it today. Um, I'm not sure if we can, are yeah. we allowed to swear on the podcast or not? I can't remember. Yeah, I think are we allowed to swear? I think we used to have a French warning. You're okay. Well, there's a, a website and a movement called Fuck Up Nights. And I think <laughs> from what I can understand, they're all over the world. I'll have to send you the link, actually. But they're called, it's just literally fuckupnights.com. And <clears throat> I think they share failures. Right? That's the whole idea, right? There's a night of people just sharing. I'm not sure if it's live <clears throat> in person because it's all around the world or whether you can dial in. I haven't really checked it out. But there's one coming up, I think, on February 18th. And I love the, that. The irony, of, I love that. the irony of it as a concept is, is in, in sharing it, you become a success because to be successful in that group, you have to share failure. So it's actually turning the whole thing on its head anyway. And something you mentioned earlier about the, the, the person you knew who said it's because of this, because of that, because of that I'm blaming externally. Yeah. Anyone that's played golf with me, not recently, I would like to think, but certainly 12 months or, or, or older than that, uh, will know that I probably wasn't much fun on a golf course to play with. And I didn't realize it. And it was pointed out to me and, and absolutely right that it was. Or, or I read it. I might have read it, actually, and it, it changed my view. But um, when we play golf, and for those that play, and I'm not a professional, everyone does, it, Anything can go wrong. There's almost no such thing as a perfect game in golf, right? There's always something as a putt that you'll miss or a, a drive that will go, go wayward. But when we do it, and it happens a lot, particularly as a high handicapper as I am, right, we tend to blame everything but ourselves. You know, it's yeah. the wind, it's the shot. I wouldn't usually do this. And we end up constantly almost like um, commentating on our poor play to those that play with us. And it was, I think it was something that I read. It was, a, it was a book called The Four Four Rules of Golf. And it's, there's nothing in there about technique. It's all about the psychology of golf. And actually, mm. it says in there, you know, A, you become the person no one wants to play with because all you're doing is moaning about your game. But what you need to realize is whether you get the putt or whether you don't, nobody else cares. They're so wrapped up into their own thing anyway. They really don't mm. care. So the more you shout, kick, laugh, you know, whatever it is you want to do and make a fuss about it, the more you're just putting everyone else off playing with you, not because it, whether it is their fault, whether it's your fault, whether it's something, no, just the point is nobody cares. So when you know that and you go, okay, if nobody cares whether this putt goes in or not, that's when you have an opportunity to sit back and go, I'm now on a golf course in a beautiful weather with beautiful views, with friends I enjoy playing with. 
And whether it goes in or whether it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And that's, I was like, wow, it hit me. Or I read it and I was like, wow, this is, it's, I was completely transformed. I would like to think, I can't say I'm 100%, <laughs> you know, I, I still get frustrated now and again if I slice yeah. something into the you know, neighboring field. But um, I'm way, way better. And I enjoy golf so much more. And I, I think it's, it's a parable I mentioned one of our earlier episodes, and you'll know it because it's quite a famous one, which is a, a full cup of tea where there's um, Nanin, which was a, a Zen master, uh, gets visited by a professor who wants to inquire about Zen. And um, Nanin, the, uh, the Zen master, gives him a, starts pouring a cup of tea and keeps pouring and keeps pouring until it's overflowing, it's going everywhere. And the professor watches this overflow and eventually says, you know, no more is going to go in. You need to stop. You need to stop. And uh, Nanin, the, the Zen master, says, you know, like this cup, you're full of your own opinions, your own speculations, your own thoughts. How can I show you Zen until you've emptied your cup? You need to empty your mind of all this stuff, and then you can let all this wonderful stuff in. And I think in the world of golf, using that as my example, I was so, I don't know, contained in my own head, full of what the perfect putt looks like, the perfect drive, all the drills I've been training on, the you know whether it's my I'm bending my arm or, or twisting my head, and all this chock of information that it's inevitable you are going to fail in inverted commas that something's going to go wrong because your head's absolutely full of all the stuff all the negative stuff actually because everything's about correcting it's not positive emotions these are things that i must not twist my my leg i must not bend my arm i must not forget to follow through whatever it is and there's so many negatives in there it's almost impossible to play a good golf shot in those conditions you let all that go you clear the mind or you empty your cup and you look outside and go, look at the view I've got here. If it goes into a hedge, it goes into a hedge. I get to sit, stand on a golf course and smack a ball, you know, 200 yards and then follow the view, which is looking over you know, skylines or beaches or seas or whatever in the country air, fresh air with my pals. Doesn't matter. They don't care where the ball goes. I kind of want to, you want to be competitive and play, but it ultimately it doesn't matter. But we can get so obsessed with success, so obsessed with getting the ball in the hole in a certain amount of shots and and we we label so much with that failure if we don't do it in those things that bring us further and further down into the abyss that we just stop having fun and if we're not having fun yeah. what's the point because we're attaching exactly. ourselves to something we don't need to be attached to i mean this is yeah i mean you're obviously like starting to read up about buddhism and everything and it's this idea of non-attachment and not being attached to the outcome, right? Being present in the process itself, which is what it's all about a lot of the time yeah. life is about. Because you don't you can't guarantee the outcome, but you can guarantee them and you were talking about Eckhart Tolle before, right? The, the power of now, right? It's yeah, now it. is the yeah, point. I'm sure. And yeah, there are no problems in the now because your problem is in the future. Like my problem with this situation that we talked about earlier is not right now. It's it's in my mind in the future of what kind of response I might get back, what kind of implementation, but it's not now, it's then. And I'm creating the problem now through my imagination, not through the reality. Um, it's, it, uh, it's, it's really fascinating. This is just, I mean, how, how our minds work. But thinking about where you were talking about golf and saying it's always, oh, don't bend your elbow like this and don't do this and don't do that and focus on the negative. And I was thinking about, yes, we, we have evolved from an evolutionary point of view to observe the negative. We talked about it before, right? When you come back to the cave, you need to see the thing that's not quite right because otherwise it keeps you alive. But also that's then exacerbated 
when we're at school and we get our maths homework back and we've got seven out of 10 right. And then the teacher or the parent yeah. focuses on those three that are wrong, those three red crosses. I think they've started to not use the color red for, for, for negative associations now. But rather than say, yeah, we've got seven right, it's always uh, you've got three wrong. And yeah. I think I can see that because you need to make progress in life and you need to do things. But usually, I think psychology shows now that positive reinforcement is more successful, right? If you have a child who's learning to walk and you'll say, oh, what a stupid child, right? You've, you've given it a few steps and you failed already, right? You should give up. No, you don't. You say, wow, you, my child's a genius. They've just taken two steps, right? And they're only six months old or whatever. And you give that positive reinforcement and then that child reinforces that behavior. When you give that negative reinforcement, they, their fear of getting things wrong becomes so overwhelming and so paralyzing that they try not to do anything for fear of getting wrong. There's and also, it's just, a it's being able to, to lose the attachment to the judgment as well. So if we lose the, use the um, baby example you gave there. So you and I, I don't know, let's, let's assume we've, we're, we're a partnership here, Howie, we have our first, we adopt our first child, right? It makes their first two steps and we've seen all the progress. Right? I mean, we're, we're in awe as our, as our child has made those steps. Another parent comes in, who's got this child the same age and their kid's been walking for three months. And they look down and go, oh, they've only just started walking, have they? Our child's been walking. So then we have that, you know, the idea of the comparison is the thief of joy. We're then suddenly mm. in that moment of going, we thought we were successful, but now we suddenly feel like failures as parents because that child's been going for three months and they've been bragging. And we're, we're allowing that judgment from somebody else to infiltrate, potentially infiltrate our own mindset, mm. our own sphere of what we think or how we uh, define success. So in an instant, a lot of people can go from feeling successful and being really passionate and happy and in that really good positive place to instantly the opposite, a bit like the cake example I gave earlier, right? You can come in and go, it's rubbish, but I was really proud of that. And everyone starts laughing well, at I it mean, and ridiculing me. It can honestly, shift very, very I quickly. I mean, people are doing that all the time, right? All they're doing is getting on their phone they and they're going on social media. And this is why I actually don't go on social media very often. I haven't done much the last couple of months, but even I would say the last five or six years, because it's a surefire way for me to, yes, my life can be great compared to others, but then I will find the people that perceivably are having a better time of things. And I'll be like, my life's not like that. And I'll feel down and miserable i don't think anyone really comes off social media a lot, a lot of the time sometimes they do where they're they they've been comparing themselves to other people and they come across going yeah i'm feeling great about myself usually it's the other way around and we compare ourselves now to people we never meet we never see we we met all once at school and never again and so people are doing this all the time and therefore maybe possibly inherently feeling like failures in their own life and i can't help but think that i felt I feel much better about myself when I'm not on these platforms. And obviously I understand the irony being I've, that we, we share these ideas. On I mean, these I've, 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 I've fallen foul of this a couple of times with the comparison of being a thief of joy is something I'm a big believer in. I, I really try hard not to fall into the trap of comparison. And we're going back probably a year or, or more so now, but my wife uh, looked at a picture on, on it uh, brings up to mind, we were talking about social media. I think it was on Instagram. She's, she's come off all social media now. So it may have been longer, probably two or three years ago, because time goes quick. She hasn't been on social media for years, but I remember seeing uh, her seeing a picture of um, someone we knew who was out in Australia and, you know, it looked like because the pictures you put there are wonderful. You only ever put, tend to put your best 
version of yourself yeah. out in these places because it plays into our ego. It's the version of ourselves we want others to see and so on and so forth. And of course, we know Australia's got the great weather, there's outdoor dining and all the things that go with it. And now the, you know, I wish the idea being, I wish I was over there. Now I don't exactly know what she said in that moment, but I know that in my, the first thing I'd want to do is come back with knowledge that I have and say something along the lines of, uh, well, did you know Australia has um, the second, which I think is true, the second highest medicated cases for low mental health or, or um, in the world, right? So they've got clearly got an issue with mental health in Australia. But even in saying that, and if that was, I think it was factual then, whether it's still now, I don't know. But even then I'm comparing in my response because I'm using a comparison to what we've got here in the UK with something in the rather than actually go, yeah, it does look great. It's wonderful. You know, and that's, and I'm not really think anything more of it than that. That doesn't mean I want to be there. It doesn't mean you should want to be there. Understand what social media is, which is putting the best version of ourselves out there for others to view at any one moment without all the things that go on behind the scenes that can impact mental health, financial health and everything else. You know, just because it's a picture of me on a beach in a nice location doesn't mean you're not having marital problems, child problems, stresses, financial stresses or anything else. That's not the version of ourselves we want other people to see. But what's frustrating for me is my instant reaction is to find a comparison in that moment to try and offset well, I was the example. I think that's and it's like, ah, I'm falling into my own traps here. This is not healthy. This is not good. And it, that's what that, social well, media can do. Is it not healthy or is it actually maybe, because we're going to compare anyway. And again, this comes to reframing, right? Because you can compare the, the nice times or you can go online and you can compare yourself to, you know, a situation happening in the Middle East right now. Okay, well, I've got fresh water, I've got food in the situation because I compared to them. So actually, comparison, yes, can be the thief of joy, but it can also, you know, be a source of gratitude, right? It can be a source of feeling grateful because you can compare yourself I agree to with that. less fortunate. And so because we're going to make the comparisons anyway, we get to choose how we make those comparisons. So I don't think that you should be hard on yourself for comparing that because you, you're using that to, to then bring joy to that person, so to speak, as it were, or at least comfort to that person. I, you know, we're going to make those comparisons anyway. So I guess why don't, why don't we make the comparisons that work? And I think the comparison that is best made possibly, and I think this is possibly the secret to happiness, at least as I remember hearing it from Tony Robbins and it resonated with me and that's progress. Now progress can only happen by comparison, by definition, right? To progress at something, you must be comparing where you are now to where you were before, for example. And so if, if progress is indeed the root of happiness, because people feel happy when they feel like they're progressing in life, they can only feel happy when they're comparing themselves to a previous version of themselves. So comparison is not a bad thing in, in and of itself. I think it's, I guess, being cognizant of how we make that comparison and using that comparison, yeah. maybe to compare ourselves to things that are within our control, because that other person's experience is not within our control. But our ability to master the language Spanish on Duolingo or whatever, comparing our, our 10 day streak to our eight day streak that we had before, that is within our control. So I guess it's not comparison that's the problem, it's comparison on things that we have no control over versus comparing ourselves to things that we do maybe have control over. Yeah, I, I I quite like the way you've put that, and I don't know if it's deliberate or not. So um, I'll let you clarify that when I when I finish. I think 
the idea being then that pro- progress I can understand and comparison and progress that those two things together. And we're just thinking these things out loud. So bear with me. I, I, I completely understand as well. However, I think it only works if we're not, comp- if, if we're talking about the comparison and progress of self. And let me clarify that, mm. what I mean by that. So for example, you use someone, you know, m- might be someone in a war-torn situation, maybe it's someone in Palestine you know, at the moment, and, or, or, or maybe it's in you know, the Gaza Strip or whatever. It doesn't matter. Or you're in you know, a third world country somewhere without, without water, I think was the example you gave earlier. You can be without water and you could trick six, seven, eight miles a day to get it. And you may have access to only, you know, a, a very, very basic amenities, facilities, schools. Maybe you've got a broken swing as part of your school playground, but you could be the most happiest boy or girl in the world with what you've got around you because you're just appreciative of the fact you've got that one broken swing or you've got appreciative of the shoes on your feet. And I'm not taking it too far away. I think the point is we've got real mental health issues in the Western world, and yet we live in a world of absolute abundance. We have everything here, mm. and yet we can get bored in an instant. We can have books on our shelves, playgrounds, outdoor gardens and centers and movie theaters and streaming things and phones and everything else and all this stuff at our fingertips someone in that that third world country would you know would look at us and go oh, you know how could they possibly be bored and yet boredom in this in, in this country in particular in the western world is a real it's a real problem adult you know people teenagers get bored and then we, there's a high crime and all the things that go with boredom as well and yet in, we go to a third world country and that's not how they view that they'll all sit together and often often you find there's more community um spirit there's much more tribal there's more community spirit and they get love and they get um enjoyment and uh, joy i think is the word used earlier and happiness out of more simpler things but I'd, i wouldn't necessarily say that they are as progressive economically um in the way or, or digitally as we are but it doesn't matter where they have progressed is their sense of self is understanding what's mm. important. And often you'll find people strive all their lives to going through the digital revolutions and digital products and earning all the money in the world to actually then strip it all away. And I've just read the, the book about the guy who went off to be a forest monk for 14 years. So maybe that's prevalent in my head. You know, he got rid of all the trappings and went right back to basics. Mm. Now for him, that was progress. But for others, it's yeah. very easy for us to assume that we're more progressive because we have more. And I'm just want to make the distinction. I, I think you were making it, so I'm not saying you weren't, but mm. it's you mentioned the word self. As long as we are individually progressing in ourselves, yeah. that we are moving yeah. forward, I would agree. But I think we've got to be careful yeah. that it's very easy for me to say, well, I've got water, you haven't. Therefore, I'm happier, I'm better. Yeah. I'm, and it's that's not necessarily the truth. It's an inner game, obviously, I'm talking about. Not like, I mean, I mean, you could call it, there, there are some externals that you could be comparing. Oh, you know, I, I've got the bigger house now than I had three years ago, and therefore I'm progressing. It's not the material stuff. It's, it's, the, it's the character and the personality that went into you that enabled you to have the exterior stuff that is the progress that we're talking about, really. All the relationships, not- all the connections that we make, or the way that we see exactly. the world. Yeah, absolutely. Right. The skills that you have. And so that monk or that person that sold everything went off to become a monk. Um, it's a bit like, I think it's that book as well, like Robin Sharma, right? The monk who sold, my, the monk who sold his Ferrari. It's similar to that, yeah. I guess, as an idea. And it's the progress within, right? Because it's this idea, like you're looking at Buddhism right now, enlightenment, right? The, the bliss state, the samadhi, as, as we say in yoga. It's progressing as a 
spiritual, emotional, physical human being, that I think is where that, that happiness comes from, not from the external progress. So that's why, yeah, it's, it's definitely the self. It's where, okay, today I can play the scales on piano, whereas yesterday I couldn't, right? It's not today yeah. I've got the bigger piano than I had last time and I still can't play the scales. Um, so it, I think that's what it is. And I think like, I think it's an important point to remember. Um, it's, if progress It's a happens, quote. Uh, I I've become obsessed with this quote. I only heard it last week. I don't know if I shared it on the last show. I may have done, so apologies if I'm sharing it again. But I think it's worth sharing again because for me, it's that powerful. Uh, it's an Anton Chekhov quote. Uh, and so you know, a Western world quote to, to a degree here. It said, um, any idiot can face a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears us out. And I just mm-hmm. think, it was thinking back to where we started today's show with those pe- those students who were scared to to go and do that thing. But we, we can all face a crisis. It's the day-to-day living, mm. the day-to-day mono, uh, monotony, the Groundhog Day syndrome, the boredom, the there's so much abundance, so much, so much, so many um, black holes to lose ourselves in in terms of digital handsets and phones. That that day-to-day living, we're constantly trying to escape it. We're constantly trying to not allow us our negative thoughts in and de- and to detach ourselves from them and distract ourselves from them. But actually, and you'll know this more than I, because you've studied it in way more depth than I have, Harry. But negative emotions are a good thing as long as we're they're in check. If we lean into them, they 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 promote action. They allow us to understand what it is we need to do to change. And actually, often when we had a negative emotion, they say, and I'm sure you'll know, the studies have come back and said that with every negative emotion is followed by three positive emotions. But if we don't ever go and lean into the negative emotion, if we're happy staying in that space of complete distraction where we feel absolutely nothing, well, then the only thing that's going to come in is boredom. You know, that that feeling of saying, I'm really thirsty, mum, in that third world country, and, that, and that's a negative. You know, I don't know. Um, it's going to be really difficult to survive the next three hours of that water. Well, it's going to promote action to go and get up and walk and find it. And then you have the positive emotion of, of getting the water at the other end, right, and going through that crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears us out. And when I read that, I was like, God, yeah. that really resonates because I've got, I've got a teenager, I've got kids, and, and often you hear your kids say, I'm bored. You think, How can you possibly be bored? You've got a trampoline in the garden, you've got switches, you've got streaming, you've got friends on your doorstep, you've got a beach walkable distance. How can you possibly be bored? And I just think it's because where there's a so many distractions, of which I'm guilty of because I'm a parent that's provided some of these things, right? And I, I hold, you know, absolute accountability for, for, for that. But um I, I just don't know. Yeah. It, it resonated with me. Yeah. And I think maybe we're too fearful of failure. We're too, too fearful of failure. We're too fearful of the negative emotions that we seek that distraction to avoid it. That quote resonates actually with me on a, on a, a slightly different level as well. Because I, I think when I do some of my talks and I'm on stage and I'm talking about my beat model and my philosophy for health and wellness and, and well-being, I often show a slide which has got me doing all these things, right? Going to Kilimanjaro, Everest Base Camp, triathlons, marathons, whatever. And I would say, look, and I, I don't use it quite like to say any idiot can face a crisis, but I'm saying like anybody can do these things, right? For six weeks, you train or 12 weeks, whatever it is, you train, you do it. When I'm talking about health and well-being and vitality and feeling superhuman, as it were, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about the day-to-day. It's the going to work, coming back, learning to cook, do your exercise, get your kids ready for school, 
because it's the day-to-day that's going to wear you out. And so that's the day-to-day is where you need the energy. Because like I say, anyone can like suddenly turn 30 or 40 and go, right, I'm going to do an Ironman to prove I've still got it and, and then train for it for six months or whatever. But then what happens? That's what I'm talking about. That's where I step in is that how can you be the, the, the ongoing day-to-day that wears you out, as that, that quote said? How can you be ready for that rather than the crisis? Because we can all, we can all navigate the crisis eventually because we have to. We have no choice anyway. And so it really resonated that quote. So I was thinking back to that slide that I showed. I was like, oh, yeah, it's not that. It's not that. It's the it's day-to-day that we're talking about because that's what wears you out. And so that's what you need to be training for. You need to be training for life, not the event, as it were. There was something else you were talking about yeah. and I wanted to, to comment on, but I can't remember what it was now. It slipped my mind, so it doesn't matter. But um well, I had a chance that the uh, one of my friend came to visit. We we're talking about where we had weirdly we were talking about failure. Just it just popped into my head now because we had a we talked about where we had epically failed, and one of my epic failures which I think I've shared in this before was when I was uh, had to do a, an a cappella song in a pantomime a couple of years ago now, um, and uh, I came in completely flat. I mean, so flat it was insane, and it was a spotlight on me. Everything was blackout, uh, bar me, of course, and I was singing completely out of tune. I'm, I'm not tone deaf, so I knew I was out of tune as soon as I came in flat, but I had to try and find the note. And of course, being a panto, the laughter started pretty early and it continued and got more raucous. The, the, the more I tried to get it right, the more they laughed. Nowhere to hide, right? And um, you could view that as an absolute failure. And yet, I think I got more enjoyment out of getting the song wrong on the first night. The other nights were fine, came in on the right tune, right? And that was okay, it went okay. There was obviously the fear that it might happen again. But when I look back on the bit I enjoyed the most, it was coming, it was continuing anyway. So the idea that, yes, in many people's eyes, I'm failing right now, but I'm not a failure until I decide that I failed. So yes, I'm failing, yes. but actually the success for me is to keep going anyway. It's the courage that counts to exactly. keep going, even if you're, it's not going the way you want. And I look back now with nothing but a smile on my face when I think of that story. I oh, made yeah. everybody laugh. That's, That's what a panto is for, right? So no, Exactly. And also, like you've said many times before in the past, um, a lot of the things you do are experiences to create stories. Right? Those five yeah. other nights yeah, that I went well, life is about really going to create a story. Yeah. That first night that went badly is creating a story. And so yeah, life is about creating stories. And this is what, you know, if you think about also like any movie or book, if, if the success happens straight away, if, if, if it happens on chapter one, you don't read the rest of the book. It, it, you, you you're drawn in because of that failure because of the challenge and because we know a failure is coming like if there's a relationship you, we all know the information the other person doesn't know when we're watching the movie and we're waiting for when that moment is it gets disclosed so how's it going to come out there's always a failure point in every movie that we have to then rise from and then it's a, how are they going to overcome when she realizes that he did x y and z on the wedding night like how are they going to overcome that bit and it's you know, we all know it's coming, but we need those failure points. But as I'd go back, with every time we experience a negative emotion, not necessarily failure, that it should be, you know, after that, you should experience oh, yeah, three positive ones. We should say, lean actually, into it, not, 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 I, not distract ourselves. I remember ourselves. it was about the negative emotions you were talking about, and I was trying to think, were you saying, yeah, not ignore the negative emotions? And I, I always like to try and give metaphors and analogies because it helps people understand things. Because negative emotions, of course, are useful, right? They're, we wouldn't have them if they weren't. And the analogy I, I use often is, you know, that of a, a warning light on your car. 
right? That's a negative emotion in this analogy, right? You know, check your oil, check your petrol, whatever. Yes, we can put some tape over it. And then yes, the warning light goes away, right? Like bury the emotion as it were, but it's still there. And if you don't act on it, then you're going to run out of petrol or you're going to run out of whatever things you need to replace. And so they're there to tell you something, hey, stop, reflect, change something, do something. It's no good putting a band-aid over it because you build up those negative emotions. We said negative emotions, right? the body keeps the score, as it were, the title of a book. Those things build up, uh, the resentment, the, the, whatever it might be. And so it's not to say you, you're not supposed to have those emotions, you're supposed to ignore them. You're supposed to reflect on them, allow them in, there may be a, an appropriate time. That's an important thing as well to think about because it's not sure. always the appropriate time. Like maybe you've got a negative emotion and then you're telling everyone that you meet throughout the day from the, the baker that you go to, to your best mate, to your your teacher, to everyone, same thing. <laughs> Might not be the right right thing to do. It is the right thing to explore it. You just have to maybe think about how you explore that and, and with whom and at the right time, I think, because I think... Yeah, it can be a bit much if you're... I don't know what the um, the Michael Jordan quote is, but you'll know it. You know exactly where I'm going with this as well, right? It's the, you know, he failed mm. more than anyone else, uh, but then he, you know, yeah. he practiced more than anyone else. So he missed 20,000 you know, 20, shots, yeah, but those yeah, 20,000 yeah. misses allowed him to get the, you know, the ones that he Absolutely. did. Babe yeah. Ruth, the famous, the famous uh, was it, baseball player from the 1920s or 30s, has the most home runs yeah. of anyone, but also the most strikeouts. I mean, we could go on and on about failure. Like Thomas Edison failed like a thousand times trying to invent a light bulb, or as he put it, he just succeeded in finding 999 ways how not to do it. Uh, James Dyson, <laughs> who invented the, the Dyson vacuum cleaners that everyone is using these days. I think on, the, on his packaging, it says we had 1,346 prototypes to get the first one right. And, and so we, you know, Sylvester Stallone, went to 500 different agents in 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 the, in the LA to try and get his um get get an agent and was kept going, said no on and on and on I think JK Rowling JK Rowling was the same wasn't she I think she had, had was but was turned down a lot of times well 37 rejections but ha um chicken soup for the soul going back to full circle to where we started uh, Jack Canfield he, uh, I think it's Jack Canford and Mark Victor Hansen who wrote the book and they were trying to get it published. 137, I think it was, 137 rejections. Wow. Uh, eventually they published it. I can't remember if it was self-published or for a really small publisher. That book series, because there's Ch Chicken Soup for the Teenage Soul, Chicken Soup for this stuff, has sold over a billion, a billion, one billion plus copies. Crazy. You know. So you have to fail to be successful, as uh, you know, as uh, as we all I'll know. I'll finish on this. You're a mathematician, so I'm going to take it completely out of context now, but I heard this from my friend who came to visit me at the weekend, and I, I really liked it. He said a lot of people think, and it's nothing to do with failure, so apologies, but um, you mentioned the word billion there, and I want to put that into context. So my friend said to me, he said, um, a lot of people think there's a billion and a million are quite close together. But he said a million, mm. I think he said a million minutes is like seconds, how many other days? A million, a so million a seconds, seconds yeah. is 11 it's days. Like nine or days or 11 days. Yeah. But it was a billion seconds. It's like 31 years. <laughs> I was yeah. like, okay, yeah. 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 That, that's a that's big it. difference. That's a big difference. I get it. I that's, get it. that's true. Yeah. And actually, for the math geeks out there, uh, just so you know, most of you think that a billion is a thousand million. Uh, we only adopted that 
as the UK last 30, 40 years or so. Because that was always the American version of a billion. A billion used to be a million million. So that'd be yeah. a lot more than 32 years in that, in that scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, now yeah, we're, we're going now we're off track. But there we go. We can we can we can finish it with that lightheartedness, I think, because it's uh, we, we've been going there on and go. on a little bit, gone over an hour. So um, I guess the parting thought. Oh, this is the parting thought. This is the parting thought that I've got for not just you but those listening. Is what can you actively, decidedly, and intentionally fail at this week? Because I think getting used to failure is a really important step in this journey. And so there's, there's a, I think there's a TED talk about rejection therapy, which is quite interesting about a guy going around just asking for things that he knows he's never going to get, like knocking on people's houses and going, can I swim in your swimming pool and things like that. And surprisingly, <laughs> out of a hundred things that he might ask, he might get three or four yeses or actually quite a lot more. That's the thing that surprised him most is how many people will say yes to things. I remember doing this years ago. I would walk down the street and it'd be raining, for example. And then I would just ask a random person who's got an umbrella, can I have your umbrella? And often, most of the time, we would say no, of course, uh, or whatever the, the thing is, just to get used to rejection, just to get used to the failure. So I think maybe the challenge for this week, for this week's listeners, and I think I've put it to a challenge to myself, is what can you fail at today? And that might be as simple as trying to strike, strike up a conversation with someone and then you're on the bus and being rejected. But the, 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 the goal is you have to do something that actually fails. So if, if that person says hello to you, great. But that doesn't count as your thing for the day. You have to do something that actually you do fail. That's cool. Well, that, that's a good challenge. It's a good challenge. I mean, if you, we, we, we're starting to practice family gratitude and we like to say, what are three things that oh, work great. well and what's one thing that worked less well? I prefer less well to the word fail, but that's fine. We can do, we can do fail for the purpose of the task. Uh, for those that well, are, want to follow and share them, then you can put it on Instagram. We, uh, follow us at mindful underscore pass underscore podcast. So we're on uh, Instagram. We're also now on Twitter as well at mindful paths. Uh, so yeah, look, I think we'll let them go. Lots to think about. If you feel like you failed at something, hopefully this is a show you can listen to and you know just recontextualize how you're viewing that failure. And hopefully yeah. we can yeah, first, um, change the way you think learning. Yeah, you're frequent yeah, attempts exactly. learning. So that's it. Keep this one in awesome. your podcast episode vault when you're when you're struggling. Good stuff, Harry. Yeah. Pleasure as always. I will uh, catch up with you again soon, mate. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, and thank you for helping me feel much much better. <laughs> Ditto, my friend. Ditto. Take care, buddy. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Mindful Past podcast with Nick Day and Harry Kalimnios. We hope you found our discussion insightful and gained valuable takeaways to support you on your journey. Please, please, please do leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform and share an episode that's resonated with you with a friend or a family member who you think may also find it valuable. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to ensure you never miss a future episode. In the meantime, we'll continue exploring mindful path topics to provide you with more insights and ideas to support your personal growth. For now, thank you for your support and we look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Mindful Path Podcast real soon.